Thank you. Thanks, Pastor Darrell, for that. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 38 to 42. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Amen. And may God bless this reading of his word. Well, obviously, we are continuing our series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, and um, I'd just like to welcome you again to church, welcome those who are online watching tonight as well. It is good to have you with us, whether physically or online, and it's great that we can gather like this together. I believe that tonight, while, well, actually, while preparing this message, uh, Pastor Darrell gave me some commentaries, which was actually very nice of him, and uh, he ne- knows that I need all the help I can get, so that's possibly why he did it. But uh, in one of the commentaries, there was an account which illustrates the topic this evening very, very well. And uh, King Saud, this is a true story, was the king of Saudi Arabia from 1932 to 1953. And during his reign, he had a woman come to him who was demanding the death of of a man who had killed her husband. This man had been picking dates in a palm tree and he lost his grip and fell on her husband and killed him. And the woman had the right to request this man's death. But under the circumstances, the king begged her to reconsider. He begged her to show mercy and to not insist that this man be put to death. However, She insisted. And so the king, by law, had no choice. He had to actually allow this man to be killed. And so he gave the order, but he made it conditional. He said to the woman, it's okay for this man to die, but he is going to stand under a palm tree and you are going to climb the palm tree and you're going to fall on him and kill him because the king had the right to dictate how he was to be executed. It may come as a big surprise. The woman changed her mind about killing this man or about having him killed. But you see, the way he was doing it, true justice would have been exercised. The guy would have died in the same way as the man that he killed. But she realised that if she had have demanded that justice there was a very high chance that she would have died in the attempt. We are living in a world where we're being constantly told to not only demand our rights, but to demand them at any cost. There are some lawyers, as we know, who specialise in this exact thing. It's all about litigation. They don't do anything else. What is good for the world, what they say we have the right to do, isn't necessarily or should not be considered good for us. As believers, we should be living with a different attitude. When we're in a general relationship with Jesus, our outlook on the world changes. It is no longer about me and what I can gain. It's about others. 
And my relationship with Jesus manifests in a new approach to mankind. I should see everyone as made in God's images. I should love my neighbours as myself. I should love my enemies just as scripture tells me to. And no one here, me included, is going to tell you that that's an easy thing to do. It isn't. We won't get it right all the time. But the call for my life and the call for every believer's life is for us to become more and more like Jesus each and every day. And I'm to relate to people through meekness, through mercy, through purity of heart, and with a desire to make peace. When we allow Holy Spirit to transform us, our lives are not about outward conformity. It's not about how we look, but our lives are about that inward transformation. It's a matter of the heart. And when we are living right, in a right relationship with God, there's this overflow which comes from us and is clearly seen in how we relate to others. Those submitted to God and his purposes are the salt and light of the earth. It's not only what they say, but it's how they live which will draw men to God. Let's pause and pray. Father God, I want to thank you again for your presence with us. I thank you you're here with us this evening. I thank you, Lord, that you go with us and before us into our weeks. And Lord, my desire is that you transform lives even tonight. I want to pray for those in the auditorium here, Lord. I want to pray for those who are watching online. I just ask for open hearts to hear from you. And I pray, Lord, that we'll respond to that. In Jesus' name, amen. As we approach this passage tonight, it's possibly relevant to look at the Old Testament passages that it refers to. And so uh, we have these three passages which, give, which gives us the Old Testament law and uh, it's in all of its bloodthirsty and savage glory as so many people do actually tell us. Show no mercy, have no pity, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, burn for burn. This is the law. It's what's been laid down. And quite simply, if any man or woman has inflicted an injury on another, he will have a similar injury afflicted on him. This is part of what Jesus is correcting when he says, you have heard what, that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And what is being quoted here is a law that is known as the lex talianus, or in common terms, the law of tit for tat. And it's meaning if a man has inflicted an injury on another, that an equivalent injury shall be in, inflicted upon him. And this is part of Old Testament law, and um, it's mentioned no fewer than three times and then alluded to many times as well. And those who oppose God, those who are against the church, use this and verses like it as an example of the bloodthirsty, merciless and savage laws of the Bible. But the fact is, this law initially came into place to show mercy. It was aimed at limiting vengeance. And I'm sure that you're aware that, you know, if I cut off Liam's finger, then he'd try and take my hand. If he took my hand, I'm going to try and take his arm. If he takes my arm, I'll take his head. 
And it, there's just this sense of vengeance where everything escalates. Think about tribal warfare. If someone inflicts an injury on someone from one tribe, then that whole tribe gathers together to inflict an injury on the other tribe. It's escalated automatically. And so when this law came in, it wasn't about an escalation of vengeance. It wasn't about doing things that were unjust. It was God saying, hey, wait a minute. The punishment has to equal the crime. You cannot step beyond those boundaries. And so this was actually a show of mercy. The law says, vengeance will be limited. It says, only the one who committed the injury can be punished. It says that there's no individual right for you to go off and seek vengeance yourself. This law was created so that judges would be guided in an appropriate penalty for anyone who injures another. And what we're also unaware of is this law was very rarely carried out literally. In fact, I'd go as far as saying it was never carried out literally in Jewish culture. They had a, another document which was called the Baba Kama which provided guides for the compensation to be made to an injured man. Uh, the matters the perpetrator was liable for was the injury itself. He was also liable for pain, for healing, for the loss of time at work, and for the indignity that was suffered as a result of the injury inflicted upon the person. And how they would assess this um, to consider the injured man as they, they'd consider the injured man, sorry, as a slave to be sold in the marketplace, and they'd consider him before the injury and how much he would fetch in the marketplace, and then they'd reassess that with his injury, and, and they would get the difference, and that would be the compensation that the perpetrator would have to pay. But there was more. When it came to the pain, they would consider how much you would be willing to be paid to endure that amount of pain. And whatever that figure was, the perpetrator had to pay that as well. In healing, and all the medical expenses had to be covered by the perpetrator until the person was cured. And um, the compensation would also have to be paid for the loss of wages during that time, how much he would normally have earned. And there's also a need to make compensation for any humility, indignity, or social suffering experienced as a result of that injury. Is this ringing a bell to you guys? It sort of sounds a little bit like what happens at the moment, hey? Those barbaric people back in Old Testament days. And Jesus is saying to his listeners, he's drawn their attention, he's got them thinking about the law and their rights under the law, and then he says, you know what? Don't retaliate. This was shocking. This, this is something that they can't believe anyone would actually say. They've got their law. It's all in place. They know the compensation they can get in these cases. And Jesus says, you know what was said. You know the rights that you have. But I'm telling you, I want you to live a different way. I want you to forget the law of limited vengeance. And I want you to live with a new attitude of no resentment, no retaliation. And if we take this again at face value, we'll miss so many things that are behind the rest of the passage. Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the others also. When we think about this passage, I want you to picture what's going on here. One man standing up opposite another, and he slaps him on which cheek? The right cheek. How's he doing that? 
It has to be a backhand. And in actual fact, this isn't about the slap. This isn't about the hit. This, this is actually an insult. Because if he hit him hard, he'd be hitting him on the left cheek. And so this hit was never intended to bring physical harm. In Jewish law, it was twice as insulting to hit someone with the back of your hand than to slap them. And so this is an insult. And Jesus' point is, whoever insults you, whatever insults they make, whatever it is that they say, you are not to retaliate. As believers, we are to reflect the very character and attitude of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So how did Jesus respond when he was insulted? 1 Peter 2.23 says, When he was reviled, or when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And what Jesus is calling us to is countercultural. It is so totally against what the world calls us to do. It is a life of giving up our rights, no longer thinking of ourselves, what we can get, what we can have, and thinking of the other. Ensuring that what we do is for their good, even when they treat us poorly. In fact, especially when they treat us poorly. And Jesus entrusted himself to God, and we are called to do the same. He will ultimately bring his judgments on those who have acted unjustly. We are to love them. We are to love our neighbours. We are to love our enemies. And in fact, when I read this, I'm glad Pastor Darrell, he has left the building. You know, Pastor Darrell always tries to give me a holy kiss. Praise God for COVID. He hasn't managed to catch me yet and COVID's holding him at bay. But as I read this and I think about this term where, you know, if someone hits you, turn the other cheek to him. I can't help but think about how they used to greet each other, how you would greet a friend. You would greet them with a holy kiss. And for me, it's sort of saying, you know what, treat them like it never happened. Extend your cheek. Allow them to kiss you. Allow them to greet you as a friend. I could be wrong, but that's just what I get. And Jesus continues, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now quite obviously there's two garments that are spoken about here. And uh, for us, you know, we might just take this at face value. But the tunic is the inner garment. It was worn alongside the flesh. And so uh, all but the poorest people and extremely poor people would have at least two tunics. But the cloak is different. The cloak was the thick outer garment that was used as a robe during the day and then it was used as a blanket at night. And Jewish law permitted that a man's tunic could be taken, it could be forfeited uh, in loan transactions and things like that, but a cloak could not. You could take the cloak during the day, but you had to return it to the guy at night. And then if you wanted to continue to hold it as security, you had to go back and pick it up in the morning, but then you had to give it back to him at night. So most people didn't even touch the cloak because it was just such a pain to keep going backwards and forwards to the person's house to get it. But this is, again, Jesus emphasising to his followers that we have given up our rights. If someone is suing us, they're going to take our tunic. And he says, give them your cloak as well. Jesus wants us to go over and above expectations. When I was a real estate agent, I worked in an amazing office. It's still one of the top offices in Australia. 
And I was always taught to under-promise and over-deliver. Always worked. Always worked. It's the same principle here. Jesus is basically saying, if your tunic is going to make this guy happy, if that's going to prevent him from suing you, give him your cloak as well. Make him overjoyed. And then he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And I'll be honest with you, I had no idea what this was about. I was just like, yeah, sweet, okay, we've got to go the extra mile. We've all heard that before. Put in a greater effort. I'd possibly grudgingly kick the dust as I dragged along, but that's not what this is about. It's true in a lot of ways. But this is a law that was actually in place during biblical times. And uh, when the Romans were in Israel, they used to utilise this law quite a bit. A soldier or a Roman of any um, status, for that matter, could just stop a citizen anywhere and say, hey, I'm tired of carrying my pack, carry it. And you would literally have to stop what you were doing and carry that pack for one mile. You had no choice. That was law. Didn't matter what you were doing. You had to carry it a mile. And so the Jewish leaders would tell their people, count your steps, 1,000 steps. Not one step more. You don't need to. You count that thousand steps, you reach that thousand steps, you drop that bag and you hike it out of there. And it was quite legal. They could do that. It wasn't a problem. And there's nothing the Romans could do about that. And so you'd leave that soldier to continue to carry the bag himself or to rope someone else into doing that. Remember the story of Simon of Cyrene? He was coming into Jerusalem as Jesus was going out to be crucified and the Roman soldier said, hey, you, carry that cross. Guess what? He had no choice. He had to carry that cross. I wonder whether that ended up being a blessing for him or not. Maybe we'll find out one day. But he had to carry the cross. He had no choice. And what Jesus is saying to us, you see every task as an opportunity. You see every burden as an opportunity. Don't think of it any other way. It is not a hindrance to you. You are a child of God. You are to grasp each and every opportunity that you can. And you're to use it for my glory. And so he says, someone tells you to carry that pack a mile, you throw that up on your shoulder and you go two miles. And you go cheerfully. And you show these people that it's not a problem for you. It is not a burden. You, in fact, consider it a joy. Don't think about yourself or your rights. Think about the privilege that you have in order to serve another. Even if what is laid on you is unreasonable. Complete the task as a service that is gladly rendered. Do it as if it was God himself who asked. Because going by this passage, that's exactly what has happened. Jesus is asking us to act in a way that is so counter to the world that people will think you're either mad or that you have something that allows you to rise above the crowd. It'll be one or the other. Our actions present opportunities to speak of the hope and the fulfilment we have found in Christ. Jesus continues... And as he speaks about giving, those listening would be reflecting on what is said in Deuteronomy 15 when he calls the Israelites to give generously to anyone who had need. They're told to not be hard-hearted and tight-fisted, but willingly open their hands and your wallets and willingly lend to others. Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
And Jesus says, give to the one who asks. Think about the context of the Old Testament. The law of lending required that all debts be cancelled in the seventh year. How would you go if someone came to you in the sixth year, well towards the end of the sixth year? I'm sure borrowers would love to borrow money at that time, and I'm sure many lenders would hate it. And if it was me, I might be one of those ones who gave grudgingly what I was required to give if it was coming up to the seventh year. Some may even refuse to have done so. But Jesus says, you are not to be like that. And even the Old Testament law says you cannot do that. We need to realise that the people involved here, though, are not asking for handouts. They're not hoping to extend their farms. They're not hoping to purchase a mansion or anything like that. Most of the people mentioned are asking for money simply to supply the basics of life. And Jesus says, you cannot allow the seventh year to govern your decisions. You must act. You must give generously. And with this, related to this law, the rabbis had five different principles that would govern the giving in these cases. And the first was that if you were asked, you were not to refuse giving. You had no choice. You must do it. And this is clearly repeated by Jesus in this chapter, this verse in Matthew 5. And the second was the amount that was given was to be in line with the person with which it was being given to. What that basically means is whatever you gave must be adequate to provide whatever that person lacked. So your gift should provide the standard that the receiver once knew. If it was someone who was quite wealthy who had gone bust, you must give them an amount that would allow them to continue to live as they had. The third principle was that all giving was to be done privately and it was to be kept secret no one else was to be present when you gave those funds no one else was to be told about the gift that you'd given and the rabbis even set up a place in the temple where people could come and secretly give gifts and the rabbis would take these gifts and they would secretly give them to those in need and often in these cases they were impoverished families who had once been nobles and the most important thing for them to provide in these cases were the dowries for the daughters so that they would be able to get married. Otherwise, they had no hope. In the midst of this is the disgust that would be expressed if anyone gave or borrowed, or sorry, anyone gave or loaned money with an expectation of prestige, recognition, or self-glorification. It just wasn't done, and it wasn't accepted at all. The fourth was that how the gift was given must befit the person receiving the gift. Some people had funds stashed away and they were too miserly to use those. So they'd received a gift with an expectation that they would have to pay it back. And if they didn't do that, then there would be a note that it would have to be paid back and recovered from their estate when they passed. There would also be some people who needed a loan but who were too proud to actually ask for that loan. And so the rabbi would approach such a man who was obviously in need and he would suggest that perhaps he needed a loan. And the man would be able to save face then and um, knowing that it wasn't actually his suggestion and the loan would be given without any expectation of that loan being repaid. In all of this, 
There was that unspoken knowledge and agreement that no request was to be refused. And if someone did refuse to give, they had to show that they weren't able to meet the demand of that person who came to them. And even then, if they weren't able to do that, they were still expected to be sympathetic towards the man who was in need. They, their refusal, refusal was expected to be done so graciously that it was encouraging to the person who came to them and asked them for money or for help. And the fifth and final principle was that giving was to be seen both as a privilege and an obligation. All giving was to be seen as giving to God. Giving to the needy was not something you could choose to do. It was something that you must do. And if anyone refused, they considered that you were refusing God. And Jesus is calling all believers to give freely to those in need. And when we think this through, there's only one consideration we need to make. Can we help? I had a friend back in Bundaberg and I was young, naive, and this woman would give freely of her money. She had a lot of money. And she would give freely. And I remember once she came to me and um, she said, this guy said that if he didn't have any money for food, could she please buy him something? And so she pulled out her purse and, of course, she gave him some money, but he saw the other money there. And he said, oh, and um, my mum is ill in Sydney and I don't have enough money for a bus ticket to go. Can you give me some money for a bus ticket? Yep, sure. No. Oh, and I don't actually have any money to spend on food uh, when I travel down there or anywhere to stay, so I'll need some money for accommodation. And it just went on and on and on. And this woman gave him a lot of money. And what do you think? It's like, lady, you are crazy. Why would you do this? And I went and spoke to her. I said, oh, Wendy, I said, seriously, I said, why would you do this? And she said, Charlie, is God going to punish me? I was like, no. And she goes, what if it was genuine? What if that was true? I've got the money. I can give it. I had no answer. But it's true, isn't it? If we have the means, our call is to give and to give generously. There's to be no other qualification. I want you to think back about everything that has been said tonight. The overarching arching theme for us as believers is to not seek our own rights. The way we're to live is to be polar opposites to the way the world is. And when we live like that, we're going to be that salt and light which gives enough taste, just enough light to draw people to God. When someone insults you, Yep, you have a right to retaliate. You have a right to get back at them. Everyone will tell you that you can. You should get even. The majority of your friends will say that. And Jesus says, no. Nope. As my disciples, you don't get to do that. When we're called to go that extra mile, or called to go that mile, being asked or forced to do something that we would prefer not to do, we could set limits on that and we could stick to that, but Jesus says, no, as my followers, you don't actually get to do that. See it as an opportunity. See it as an expression of my generosity to this person and go with them an extra mile if you can and do so cheerfully. Show them that there is another way. 
When someone is in need, you can say, I've worked hard for my money and I have saved for a rainy day and they should have done the same thing. You've got a right to say that. You've got a right to say you can do what you want with your money. But Jesus says, don't be tight-fisted. Release what you have. I've given it all to you anyway. Just release what you have. And give to everyone who is in need. All of this is about being generous. It's about reflecting the generosity that God first poured on us. I would be no one and have nothing if it wasn't for God. And so the call is for us to love our enemies, to do good, to lend, expecting nothing in return. We're not to look to our own interests. We're, looked, we're to look to the interests of others. We can be right or we can be generous. And so many miss the life they could have because they demand their rights. Jesus clearly calls us to live another way. When we are generous, we reflect the very character of God. Do we not declare he has been abundantly generous to us? I know he's been abundantly generous to me. Has he not loved us like no one else has loved us? Has he not sacrificed for us like no one else has sacrificed for us? Has he not pursued us, valued us, strengthened us, poured his favour on us? When we were wretched, just like me, when we were without hope, Jesus says, do likewise. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your generosity and for your love that you so freely pour out upon us. And Lord, I personally ask for your forgiveness for those times when I haven't been generous towards others. You know, Lord, I haven't loved my neighbour. You know I haven't loved my enemy. But I want to. I want to be like Jesus. I want people to see you through me. And Lord, I ask that that's the prayer of so many here tonight. I ask, Lord, that you'll challenge us to be more and more like Jesus each and every day. And I ask, Lord, that we'll put aside our own selfishness, our own desire for gain, our own desire for getting what is right. And we'll say, Lord, not my way, but your way. I'm going to live for you. And I'm going to be generous to anyone who has need. In Jesus' name, amen.